Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the reaction to decades of privatization of what should be public institutions. In other words, a reinvigorated movement for public ownership of institutions, such as utilities, banks, train systems, and so on, is on the march. But this isn't your grandfather's top-down public ownership. The new movement has bottom-up, accountable, democratic control of institutions at the very core of its mission. But before we get started, I have a few more thoughts on this, because as I've been researching today's episode, I've been thinking about how this issue cuts across some really interesting aspects of political philosophy. So I wanted to highlight that before we dive in, uh, just a quick overview on what I'm talking about from both sides. From the conservative side, one of the tent poles of conservatism is the demand for local control. They have that instinct to like, get out of my face, don't tell me what to do. They don't want to, you know, have someone from far away who doesn't understand their needs setting rules that they have to follow. Whereas this isn't a major belief for progressives because, I mean, frankly, we've seen what can happen when some people are left entirely to their own devices. You know, think the civil rights era and, and previously in Jim Crow and all that. Human rights atrocities can break out if oppressors are left to their own devices and they're in control at the local level and there's no recourse beyond that. So progressives want to be able to set laws broadly that protect everyone, even if that means Washington is imposing its will on some faraway locality where those uh, politicians have never been to. So conservatives hold local control as a core value, whereas progressives hold positive outcomes as their core value. Now, I think conservatives would argue that they insist on local control because it provides better outcomes. But if you can demonstrate that the opposite is true, they're not necessarily going to go along with that. Whereas progressives, as I think we'll see, really just care about the outcomes. And they, they care much, much less about where the power lies. If the power lies in Washington and it works well, cool. If it lies at the local level and it works well, Cool. So the issue of public ownership sits right at the center of this philosophical debate. Conservatives generally oppose public ownership because they favor local control, and public could mean, you know, some faraway capital is controlling what's happening in your small town. Progressives like the idea of public ownership because they want to be able to regulate through the democratic system rather than the market system. Don't just let the market do whatever it wants. Something can go wrong. Don't let people necessarily do whatever they want. Atrocities may arise, that sort of thing. But this doesn't mean that conservatives oppose all public ownership because some public ownership can be done at the genuinely local level. And as I said, progressives have no problem with local control of publicly owned institutions as long as it works out well, as long as the outcomes are genuinely good. So that's sort of an overview of the opposing political philosophies. But now we have to address the elephant in the room. When you come to public ownership, of course, you think of state ownership. And when you think of state ownership, you can't help but think of Soviet-style state ownership communism. It'd be great if we didn't need to keep having this conversation. But the United States 
has formed so much of its collective identity over the past 60 years by being the opposite of the Soviet Union. I mean, that's why we only teach neoclassical economics to our students, because God forbid they learn anything else. And that's why it says, in God we trust on our money, to be different than those godless communists. So we can really only understand ourselves if we understand the Soviets at this particular time in history. So Soviet-style state ownership is still what many of us think of when we think of public ownership. And with that comes the, the idea of inept, unaccountable, often corrupt bureaucracies making decisions far away from the institutions that they have control over. So it's basically like what conservatives hate about Washington, D.C. turned up to 11. And there's no denying that it was a left-wing movement that overthrew the Russian czars and implemented that system in what became the Soviet Union. But let's just assume for a minute that they are not like blood-drinking, evil people who were just hungry for power and wanted to oppress everyone. The purpose of the revolution was to overthrow an oppressive system where the vast majority of people were in grinding poverty. So the whole premise was to redistribute wealth, take from the rich, give to the poor, that whole thing. So in their quest to do that, they did what left-wing progressive movements always do, which is do the thing that they think will work the best. So they knew they wanted to take from the rich and give to the poor. The only question was how. And they figured, okay, we've taken over the state. The state now represents all of the people. So if we take the wealth and the businesses from the rich and give it to the state, well, then that's the easiest way for the for all the people to benefit because the state is the people, the people is the state, and so on. So it turns out that having the state own everything and manage everything from a top-down uh, sort of perspective is a terrible way to run society. But you can see how that might have looked okay on paper beforehand and just didn't pan out in reality. Side note, it's a bit like how unregulated capitalism looks a lot better on paper than in real life. So here's what everyone listening needs to know. Everyone has learned that lesson. We shouldn't keep having the same debate about Soviet-style ownership and socialism being the same as communism and, and thinking about uh, the Soviet Union. We have all learned that lesson. It's not just socialism-hating conservatives that got the memo. Far-left progressives who hate capitalism, think it's destroying humanity and the planet, also learned the lesson of the failures of Soviet-style socialism. So where does that leave us? With today's episode, featuring strong progressives advocating for public ownership of major institutions, but with the local, democratically accountable control that conservatives love so dearly. So this topic, you know, it may sound kind of dry and even boring at first glance, you know, it should... An electric company be managed by investors who appoint managers uh, or by managers appointed by government. Fit. Like I'm falling asleep already. But in reality, I find this to be a very exciting topic when seen through the lens of history and political philosophy. For instance, how did the legacy of World War II inspire the creation of a publicly run rail system in the UK that didn't bother to include the public? We shall find out. So have a listen and then go make a friend with a conservative and tell them that you love local government after all. 
Now onto the show, clips today come from Democracy Now!, Building Local Power, Weekly Economics, The Next System Podcast, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Counterspin, and The Laura Flanders Show. PG&E, the corporation that controls most of Northern and Central California's electricity and the biggest utility in America, has been implicated in many of the fires that have ravaged California in recent years, including the campfire that killed 85 people and completely destroyed the town of Paradise in 2018. In January, PG&E declared bankruptcy, facing a number of lawsuits related to the wildfires, but it still controls much of California's power grid. For more, we go to a lawmaker who's calling for the California state government to take over control of PG&E and make it a public utility. Congressmember Rokhana joins us now from Washington, D.C. Um, Congressmember Kana, later in the broadcast, we're going to talk to you about this epic day around the issue of impeachment. But right now, we're focusing on what's happening in California, which is also, to say the least, epic in this emerge state of emergency. Explain for people— around the world who don't understand how PG&E operates, what it is now, and what you are calling for? Well, first of all, it has been a disaster in the Bay Area of where I live. Uh, people's homes are being destroyed by fire. Many thousands of people are without basic electricity. PG&E is basically a private monopoly that gets a return on investment for their private investors, but has no competition. It's the worst of both worlds. It's a monopoly, a private monopoly, and yet it has exclusive jurisdiction uh, over a particular zone, so it doesn't have the competition that free markets usually have. And this has resulted in PG&E making systematic underinvestments. They have not secured the power lines. They have not engaged in the uh, brush clearing that was necessary to make sure that these fires didn't uh, escalate. They have no provision for backup power, even though this was completely uh, foreseeable. At the same time, they're paying their CEO $9.8 million, and the investors are uh, making money, and this mismanagement has led to bankruptcy. What I have said is, in a case where you have a private monopoly without competition, that's a case of public ownership where you're not having a profit motive and extractive capitalism. The state should take over uh, PG&E, and different municipalities should run the uh, uh, power uh, distribution for their cities, and then the state should provide it to rural areas where the cities can uh, do the job. Representative Rokhana, how common is it in the U.S. that uh, gas uh, and electricity are provided by private corporations? I mean, I myself was confused that this PG&E is called a public utility, but in fact it's private. Well, it's technically a public investor utility. In other words, there is public regulatory oversight uh, over it, uh, the uh, California Public Utilities Commission, but it's private investment and it has a private board of directors and they determine the executive compensation. And the public regulators really don't have much ability uh, to move PG&E. At the same time, PG&E is pouring millions of dollars into the governor's campaign, into state legislators' campaigns. So the process has been co-opted by these special interests. Unfortunately, 
most of the country, many states have public investment utilities. And this is why Bernie Sanders and his Green New Deal plan has said that we need to move to publicly owned utilities. And we know in publicly owned utilities, particularly municipalities, are much better. It's lower cost for residents. Their uh, energy mix tends to be much more renewable. Their safety standard tends to be much higher. And you take the profit motive uh, of extractive capitalism out of it. And so what would need to happen for it to become an actual uh, publicly owned utility controlled by the state of California? And can you explain, for example, how that might have changed the outcome of what happened in Paradise, California, um, which burned to the ground, killing 85 people last year? Absolutely. Well, had PG&E been a publicly owned utility— Instead of paying $9.8 million to the CEO, because there's no way California voters or taxpayers would have allowed that, uh, PG&E would have been required to make the investments in the safety of the power lines. They would have been made forced to make the investment in clearing out the brush or trees where they were in dangerous uh, positions. I had someone in my district who said that PG&E had come two months ago saying nine trees needed to be removed because they were a fire hazard and no one has followed up. So there would be far more public accountability. Uh, there also would be a much larger source of renewable energy. In my district, uh, Silicon Valley Power is a public utility in Santa Clara. They have almost 40 percent of their energy uh, be renewable. Uh, they have lower rates and they're much safer. Uh, so how do we get there? PG&E currently is in bankruptcy. Their entire market cap is about $2 billion dollars. California, uh, as you know, has a state surplus. We could easily uh, take over the, uh, the, the, the utility uh, in bankruptcy, either by issuing bonds uh, or by using some of that surplus. As we know, California is not the only place in the country that has natural disasters um, or trees that need to be trimmed. Uh, when Hurricane Sandy uh, hit the northeast coastline, um, we did see municipal utilities uh, recovering faster, maybe uh, managing the situation a little bit better than PG&E has done in California. Could you talk a little bit about that, John? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good example of the issues that we're facing it, because we have uh, with Hurricane Sandy, there were a number of news stories afterwards showing that folks who were served by municipal utilities, city-owned utilities, often had power back within maybe a day or two, even less than 24 hours, despite the severity of the um, damage caused by Sandy. And yet customers of some of the larger utilities that were investor-owned, um, like National Grid, were out for as long as a week. And what a lot of the when you when you dig into this, this is actually a pattern that you see. Um, if you look at national stats on reliability in terms of the average amount of minutes that you're out of power on a given year or the number of outages, uh, municipal utilities tend to be among the best. And there's a lot of reasons for this, but one of them is they invest really well in their maintenance budget. So when we were talking about tree trimming before and Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, there is a history there of skimping on their maintenance budget. So this actually goes back to 1999 when they were in trouble in front of state regulators for not investing enough. And they had to settle a case about investments that they had not been making and, and beef up their budget uh, to do more tree trimming. And again, in April, a federal judge found as part of the bankruptcy proceeding that Pacific Gas and Electric is going through 
uh, that um, their tree trimming budget was insufficient. And in fact, I want to read a quote from that uh, judge that was in the paper back in April when the story came out. Uh, the, the federal judge said, quote, PG&E pumped out $4.5 billion in dividends and let the tree budget wither, end quote. And so very clearly this tension for investor-owned utilities, which are set up to help you know, pull profits to shareholders between doing the basic maintenance that makes sure that the grid is reliable and uh, paying their shareholders. And of course, when you get to a situation like this in California, where you have climate-induced wildfires that are getting worse and worse, the problem is that you can no longer really escape from the fact that you have been underinvesting in the grid system and in doing that basic maintenance. And there's also this issue, and I, you know, Chris has mentioned this a lot in podcasts that he's done about the benefits of locally owned broadband networks is, you know, this, there's no strangle effect. It is much harder to reach out and strangle somebody responsible for the problem when it's a huge investor-owned utility that serves half the state, as opposed to when it's a local municipal utility, you can show up at City Hall, find their office and be like, hey, I'm really mad about this. Yeah, you're getting uh, glares in the grocery store checkout line um, instead of, you know, the occasional angry email. Let's not get too caught up in the, the strangle effect as long as I'm the boss around here for at least my program. <laughs> what was that? I'm co-director. <laughs> so I just wanted to note, I think this really comes back to local, local self-reliance and an issue that we're going to have in, in coming years, decades, frankly, as we wrestle with these these types of issues. Because... From a perspective of PG&E, it makes sense to slash the tree maintenance budget because you know for sure you will be giving more money to your investors today. And in the future, it's possible that that will have negative repercussions, but your your shareholders will probably not be be on the hook for that is what the assumption is. And that's certainly been true in what we've seen in the the history of many of these companies uh, slashing their budgets in that way, I think. And so what it comes down to is then because we know that PG&E has that tendency and those incentives, we rely on regulators to try to stop them from doing that, to look at this sort of thing. In theory, there's a public utility commission or a public service commission that's supposed to be looking over their practices. But as you know, those people, the regulator, is it gets forgotten by the public, and the only ones that pay attention to it are the regulated, and so they have a strong influence over that body. And this gets back to our preferred solution, which is not to just hope we'll have better regulators, but to have systems that where you will get a glare if you're doing a bad job, uh, where there's um, a real accountability, where a person, um, you know, I think shame is something that we don't have enough of in certainly the current political climate, but like in general at the local level, there's repercussions if you screw the community over. And, and I think that's something that we don't have right now. And we've tried to cover for that with a very flawed regulator system. But fundamentally, this all goes back to something that I, I harp on a lot, which is when you do something wrong, are there, is there going to be repercussions? Is it going to be visited upon you or can you externalize it to someone else? For PG&E, they clearly have not believed there would be a real repercussion for them slashing those budgets. Do you think there are going to be consequences for this, John, or are Californians just going to get used to the power being shut off during wildfire season? Well, I'm going to answer that in just a second, but just wanted to say that in the spirit of shame that I think I need to have a conversation with Chris after this podcast interview about your performance. Um, I've, I mean, I think this is the crucial question is what is the consequence going to be? And I think what we've seen in the last couple of years is, uh, especially with this issue of wildfire risk is um, PG&E, the reason they are bankrupt right now is because they are actually being held accountable for the wildfire. So there was a direct connection made between 
trees falling on their power lines as the result of poor maintenance, causing the fires that caused billions of dollars in damage and, you know, as much as 80 lives uh, in the 2018 fire season. Right. I mean, let's just be clear, like, like billions of dollars in damages, but people's homes destroyed, memories wiped out. I mean, you can't put a price on the lives that are lost, the amount of damage that's done to people's, um, the, their families and things like that. I think it's, it's worth noting that. And you're saying like they're paying a price. And I'm, I just want to note, I don't think that some shareholders losing some money is the appropriate penalty for this level of damage, but that's the best we can do under the system that we have. It seems like. Are you thinking about tarring and feathering, Chris? <laughs> yeah, but but only when there's a only when there's a risk of low risk of fire should we do tar and feathering, right? Um, so I think there's a couple of things that I think they're really interesting tied into this um, in terms of implications. So when we talk about responsibility so that the company is now bankrupt of course bankruptcy is often a way for investor-owned companies to shed liabilities and responsibilities and then to come back and hand out profits to shareholders so this is actually one of the big questions going on right now is how is california going to resolve this crisis in a way that's fair for folks and uh one of the ways that we're talking about this is about the potential of shifting to public ownership in fact this is kind of already happening so for the last decade Hundreds of thousands of Californians have already been installing their own solar arrays. So they've already said, in effect, we can get a better deal producing power for ourselves. And now they're starting to talk about adding battery storage. In fact, that's unfortunately one of the things that Pacific Gas and Electric is essentially saying to people is, we're going to shut off the grid, so you better have your own power system. And the problem is that that solution by itself is not very equitable because, of course, only people who have lots of money can have access to that solution. The other thing that's been happening, though, really quick, though, is just that we are seeing uh, a growth in public ownership of utility systems through a policy called community choice. And so as many as half of Pacific Gas and Electric's customers are going to be served by public agencies within the next year. So I want to I want to come back to that because I think it's an important point. But I wanted to note David Morris has talked about this in the past, um, and I don't know if it's been on BL on a building local power or not. But um, one of the things that he's talked about is how for for years, for decades, there's been arguments about high voltage lines versus more distributed generation, and one of the arguments has been that um, it would be too costly to do distributed generation in part because I think the way the the high transmission line economics work, the costs are paid in, in different ways that are externalized to some of the people who really benefit. But fundamentally, what we've come at now is a point at which PG&E is saying, having built all these high voltage power lines with other people's money, well, now you also need to do all the costs of decentralized generation and, and power storage, which means that we effectively are paying the price for both systems, but getting the benefit of neither one, which is just really dumb. We'll start by turning back the clock. So some of the public institutions that were set up after the Second World War were amazingly popular, especially the NHS, and still are. But there were problems with nationalisation too, of course. So, Hilary, what sort of trouble did these institutions run into? Well, I think the contrast of the NHS is, is helpful because the, the point about the NHS is right from the beginning in Nye Bevan's vision and in the whole kind of way it was built, there was a commitment to make a health service for the people. And it was actually based on a model that was invented by the people, the people of Trevega in, in South Wales, where Nye Bevan came from. So there was a kind of 
both a democratic element and a public purpose element, and the two are very closely connected. Whereas the nationalized industries, they were brought into public ownership in a, in a slightly different way, more like for the good of the economy. I mean, it was partly the legacy of the war. That meant that there wasn't the idea of the public, the public purpose, even really fully built into their goals. And in a way, that meant that when it, they came to be run and managed, actually, it, it wasn't considered particularly relevant to involve the public, whether the public was understood as the users and the communities affected, like the mining communities uh, or the passengers of the uh, of the railways, nor to involve the the, the workers who were also users mm. and in a way who were, were the front line of, of of relationships with the users. So it was a lack of democracy linked to the lack of a clear public purpose as distinct from market purpose. So in that basic foundation, you see some of the problems that we've then experienced uh, with the railways prior to, to, to privatization. Yeah, I think I, that's quite reflective of, I think, of the moment when that kind of big nationalization drive happened was there coming out of the war, there's this enormous faith that the state could centrally um, manage and direct expertise, um, knowing the success that they had with things like operations research, these kind of early forms of management science that they used to plan the war effort, the mm. state thought that they could use those same kind of techniques and transfer them over to the civilian sector. Um, but that did mean a very kind of top-down, expert-led rationalism that maybe did kind of preclude any kind of democratic or kind of bottom-up input into it. But it was reflective of the time when there was real faith in the idea that you could re really like plan and manage um, centrally. And I think that reflected in the way things like steel, um, the steel industry was nationalized and really a, a central kind of cadre of managers came to, came to govern in a way that was very different to what we might turn to now. So I think what I'm hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the way in which that things were nationalized in the past was to an extent always around serving kind of business and market interests rather than the public good. And the NHS was kind of an exception to that rule. Is that right? Is that reductive? Well, I think that's part of it. But I think there was also an equation of socialism with state planning. So mm -hmm. there wasn't really, although I think they're different traditions. And I think Nye Bevan represented a maybe more democratic bottom-up tradition in some regard. But there was that sort of belief that, that, that came from the Fabians, particularly, you know, been to the Soviet Union and felt it was a wonderful model of, you know, planning. It was about rational planning. The mm. idea that the people had the knowledge or capacity to, to run a service was complete anathema. In fact, Stafford Cripps, a key figure at that time, said no way could the workers um, actually know how to run an industry. But yet workers had played a crucial part in the production levels and so on necessary for the war effort. So they were, workers in the unions were quite confident that they could play an important part in public management. They prepared plans and so on. But these were completely dismissed. So it was a little bit I'd add to your point that it was also to do with how socialism was conceived at that time. It was mm -hmm. conceived as mainly about the state and about planning and not really about 
uh, economic democracy or workers' democracy or anything that really involved the public, the people, the users, the citizens. Mm. Mm. I think it's right that we can make our public services much more democratic, much more accountable, but I don't think we should underestimate the extent of the achievement of the post-war public services mm. that, that were created. I mean, it was unprecedented and it's made a huge difference to people's lives, not just the creation of the NHS, but also, you know, the railway, the water companies, they were run uh, for the benefit of the public. Yes, they could have been better, but it was a real achievement. You know, yeah. those, those public services mm. were a real achievement. And I think, you know, British Rail, for example, was deliberately underinvested in by the government mm. as part of a, you know, a strategy by which they could then sell it off, mm -hmm. you know, and tell a, tell a negative story about it. You know, like as, as Chomsky <laughs> says, you know, exactly, you know, you underinvest in public services, then you tell a, a negative story about the public sector that just isn't true. Um, and then you use that as an excuse to sell it off. For now, uh, we've covered some of the history. I want to have a quick chat about how public ownership might work in the future in practice. So Kat, people often talk about nationalisation, but you talk about public ownership. What is the difference? Is there one? Yeah, so we've always been really clear that we talk about public ownership because it's not just about the national level of the state, it's also about the regional and local levels. Um, and also nationalisation can feel like a word that is associated with the past. And actually, you know, we don't want to renationalise, we don't want to go back anywhere, although we want to build on, on the successes of the past, we want to go forward. So mm. we talk about public ownership to really make that clear. Okay, um, and public ownership is... Public ownership is running public services for the benefit of the public. So it means that we get the profit, profit comes back to the service and is reinvested in making it better, and we get a say, so services are accountable and, and responsive to us. Okay, so if we take some areas where there's the most support for public ownership, so water, energy, rail and mail, could the government actually afford to buy them all and how would it work? Yeah, so we definitely can. In some areas, it's a case of contracts coming to an end. So in the case of outsourcing or rail franchises, those are contracts. When we come to the end of the contract, the government can bring it in-house and they don't need to pay anything for that. So that's really great. Of course, it's more complicated in terms of buying trains, but you know, the, the big picture is we need to bring contracts in-house. When it comes to uh, taking back or buying back assets, so for example, the water companies... There is potentially a cost associated with that. Arguably, though, it's about getting something that is of value to the public. And that's an asset that will, you know, that will pay off, essentially. And so depending what price you pay, that will pay for itself over a number of years. Because actually, when we have services in, in public ownership, we save money on shareholder profits. Mm. We save money on the lower cost of borrowing to invest. Um, and we save money on the cost of uh, not having to create and regulate artificial markets where they don't actually belong. So we save money in all of those ways. Um, and that money can be uh, returned to the government, ploughed back into the service. Uh, so we've got an asset in our hands. Mm. Of course, there's a question of compensation for shareholders. If you look at the water companies, for example, and, you, and if you look at what they've done over the past 30 years... They've increased our bills by 40%. They've polluted our rivers. They've dodged tax. They've built up a debt mountain. And, and they've basically, you know, relied on the fact that they've got a monopoly service that people have no choice but to use. 
um, and they've, they've extracted as much value as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. So we're arguing that actually we should just take back those assets and not mm-hmm. compensate them because if anything, they should be compensating us. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies. Owned by the richest dude in the world. That one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then. Maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases. I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does. Does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. I know that in the context of the United Kingdom, there's been a lot of debate recently, uh, both about the effects of privatization and the, the benefits of, of public ownership, um, particularly when it comes to railways, energy and water. And I wanted to ask, um, how do you make the case for public control of public goods and services, as opposed to private management thereof? And and how is that message generally received? Yes. So as you say, we've had um, in the UK, we've had a real opening up of this debate. And I think what we've had for the last 30 plus years until now is a kind of commitment to uh, the ideology that we have to have everything in private hands, that we have to have everything privatised. Um, ever since Margaret Thatcher and the 80s where these public goods were privatised, um, the policymakers have been essentially committed to that to that path. Um, and so um, what's been really interesting uh, recently is that basically the public is, is finally getting a chance to have a have a think about whether this is the right way forward and and actually privatization has never been popular in this country so it's always been incredibly unpopular because people actually feel you know instinctively um, you know all the points that that Shah made around around cost quality accountability flexibility you know we can't get the kind of amazing public services that we need if they're privatized and people realize that they realize that it's a real nonsense um, to try and insist that everything be privately owned and run Um, and I think people really believe that public services are about you know offering a, a, a good important social good to people and they're not about making a profit for a hand for a handful of shareholders um, so, so public ownership is incredibly popular, um, and we've had polling that's that's showing 83% of us want public ownership of water, uh, 77% want public ownership of energy, 76% for rail, and so on and so forth. So, it's really exciting at the moment the, the debate that's happening here right now. Absolutely, and you know. Um, Thomas, I want to move to you. So sometimes when someone suggests public ownership as an alternative to private control of goods and services, there's a perception that these proposals are abnormal or, or radical, uh, perhaps particularly in the United States. Um, but just noting that the subtitle of your book is The Return of Public Ownership in the United States, I have to ask, where did, uh, where did it go? 
Well, it actually didn't go anywhere. Um, I think the subtitle <clears throat> refers mainly to the return of public ownership as a talking point, as a strategy, as something that people are interested in, engaged with. Uh, actually, public ownership in the United States has remained pretty resilient and pretty robust, uh, surprisingly so, across, across a wide variety of sectors. And where I think it's interesting is where it's coming back into public discussion. So just now in LA, we have a, a teacher strike going on. And one of the things that they're striking against is the privatization of uh, schools and charter schools in in California. Um, you know, we also have uh, PG&E, which is a major electric utility, which has been blamed for perhaps starting some of the fires out in California, which is declaring bankruptcy. And a lot of climate and energy activists are talking now about uh, how to think about uh, maybe converting PG&E to public ownership into a publicly owned utility. Uh, Cher mentioned the uh, the parking meter catastrophe of privatization in in Chicago, and that privatization actually helped scupper the privatization of Midway Airport uh, because it was so bad, and people had realized that it's so bad. Uh, water privatizations as well are being reversed in the United States, and people are really starting to develop campaigns and, and a lot of energy around uh, public ownership of water. So I think the return is it's really come back onto the political agenda. But in terms of actual practice, it never really went away. Public ownership remains pretty prevalent and resilient in the United States. Thomas, I know you, you've looked a lot at this as well. A key issue for many a uh, activists and politicians, including the Labour Party, is um, the British Labour Party, I should say, is not simply returning to the traditional top-down managerial forms of public ownership that were dominant in the past, but um, developing new governance structures and uh, arrangements that make these enterprises more democratic. Uh, how do you approach the, the issue of uh, democratic governance when it comes to public institutions? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You know, traditionally in the 20th century, especially in the United Kingdom, but also in the United States and other parts of the world, the public ownership was arranged as the sort of traditional state-owned enterprise, you know, very top-down, very bureaucratic. In the UK, it's often referred to as the sort of Morrisonian model after the architect of the post-war nationalization program of the Labour Party government of Clement Attlee. Um, but you know, from the perspective of trying to build a more equitable, just, sustainable, democratic society and, and economy, you know, simply returning to those top-down forms is insufficient. And the Labour Party, I think, really understands this. John McDonnell, especially in their manifesto and in their program, you know, they've made it very clear that they're not looking to return to that model and they're looking for things that are more democratic and, and more participatory. So the real question for us, I think, as, as people who are interested in public ownership is how to articulate a vision for democratic public ownership. And I think there's a lot of examples that we can draw from both in the United States and around the world. I'm sure Kat, you know, Kat, I know, because I've spoken with her before, has, a, has some great lines and some great examples from the European experience. So I'll turn it over to her in a second. But just in the American experience, because of the way the American system is structured, we are more decentralized politically. So it actually puts public enterprises and public ownership closer to the people in some respects, especially at the local and the municipal level. So there are interesting examples to draw from in, in the U.S. experience, um, ways to make things more accountable and more transparent. Just recently uh, in Nebraska, Nebraska is an all-public power state. So every resident and business in the state of Nebraska gets their electricity from a publicly owned entity, mostly publicly owned utilities, but also some cooperatives. In Nebraska, you know, these are, have traditionally been very, you know, as I said, traditional uh, publicly owned enterprises, but climate activists in the state are now uh, starting to think about how they can 
you know, get involved in these utilities to transition the state to more renewable energy. So I think three or four climate activists, renewable energy activists have been elected recently to the board of the Omaha Public Power District um, and to try and move and transition uh, that power district to more renewable energy. So, you know, that's an example of basically taking democratic control, using the democratic process that's embedded in publicly owned enterprises and public ownership to transition uh, to a more sustainable society. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to uh, take uh, what, what Thomas said and pitch that over to Kat, because I know that you focused on, um, you know, uh, campaigns uh, on the need to deliver modern, high quality public services in a transparent and accountable way. I think that's very much related to dem- dem- uh, democratic governance. Um do you want to say a little bit more about that? Are there any examples that you'd point to? Yeah, definitely. So um, what we're saying is we need to make public ownership so wildly successful that it can never, ever be reversed. Um, and that means, obviously, it has to be democratic, accountable. Um, it has to be uh it has to be very efficient and effective. It has to be green. It has to be innovative. It has to be all of these things. Um, and so I think it's really important that we look at all of the best practice um, that is out there. And we're basically in the process of thinking about this and working out what are all of the concrete examples that we can that we can pull together to look at what great public ownership looks like. Um, and I think there are different there are there are lots of different examples. So you know, as as has been mentioned, there's been this wave of Remunicipalization or bringing um, often very local public services into public hands um, across the world and in the US. Reading Thomas's book has been fantastic to to read about all these practical examples and see how possible it is. And and in terms of you know best practice, I think one of the best examples that that we often uh, think about is um, is water in Paris. So. Um, uh, as I mentioned, in, the, in, this, in this country, we have water companies that, that have private monopolies. Uh, they're doing a terrible job, um, and we're looking to what we could replace them with. Um, and in Paris, they brought their water into public ownership in 2011. Um, they have a, a governance model which um, really has a, a range of stakeholders involved, looking at you know the, the social and the environmental as well as the economic side of of the service that they're providing Um, they have what's called an an observatoire where they have a kind of um, a bunch of different stakeholders um, assessing what what the company is doing it's a publicly owned company they have monthly meetings that are open to the public and all of their data is open and transparent Um, and what they've been able to to deliver with that is lower bills um, a better service um, and lots of innovation. So they've, you know, for example, they've made uh, water accessible to homeless people throughout the city. Um, they've introduced still and sparkling water fountains throughout the city, um, which has been referred to as socialism with a sparkle. Um, so there's all these kind of great practical examples of of what can actually happen on the ground and how innovative a publicly owned service can be. And I think, you know, it's about it's about having that public mission and public governance set up right. Um, but it's also about, you know, thinking about how it connects with with people and with public service users at every point um, and, and, and trying to come up with, you know, real tangible ways that we can make a difference to people's lives.
In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. We've lost a several thousand community banks in the last 10 years because of the pressure, the regulatory pressure that has been put on community banks, largely as a product of the Dodd-Frank regulation in which they were trying to regulate the big banks, but they also clamped down on the community banks, which couldn't afford the regulation. So the community banks started to go away. They merged with others to become bigger, to be able to be more competitive. Well, the community banks were the ones who were really feeding the local economy. They were the ones that were making the loans to small businesses and for mortgages and for a variety of the baseline productive investments that make local economies work. Now, as an example of how public banking impacts that scene, in North Dakota, there are more community banks per capita than anywhere in the country, and they are multiple times more profitable than the other community banks in the country. Why is that? It's because the publicly owned state bank, the Bank of North Dakota, partners with the community banks to enable them to make larger loans so that they can be more involved in the development and the investment in the local economy. So that instead of having a car dealer go off to Bank of America because they can't get enough money from his local bank, the local bank in North Dakota will call up Bismarck and say, hey, we've known this guy for 20 years. His paper looks good. His business plan is fine. Will you stand with us, Bank of North Dakota? Will you stand with us in making a larger loan? And the answer is, well, frequently yes. And that is how the market share in North Dakota for community banks is about 180 degrees different than it is anywhere else in the country. That is, they hold about 82% of the deposits of the citizens of North Dakota, and the big banks hold only 18%, meaning that the money stays in the state, which is a critical component of being able to stabilize local economies as well as to nurture and Mm -hmm. expand the kind of investment that's needed to make local economies work. Well, this is a fascinating story, listeners. First of all, the Bank of North Dakota just celebrated its 100th birthday. It was started by the farmer progressive movement in North Dakota because they didn't want to be controlled by outside banks, especially the big banks in Minnesota, never mind New York at that time. And during the crash in 2008-2009, when the big banks in New York crashed on the economy, what happened to the Bank of North Dakota? 
Oh, it was it unscathed. In fact, it had its largest profit for the bank's history in the bank's history at that time. Every year since then, the profit has gotten larger. So it's, they're now in their 15th year of year-over-year increased profitability. Okay. So let's face reality here. These big banks are not capitalist free enterprise. They know very well, the executives in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles, they know very well that they can keep gambling and gambling with your money, your pension money, your deposits, savings accounts. They can mix commercial banking and investment banking, circumventing regulations, because they know that you, via Uncle Sam, via Washington, are going to bail them out. So what we have here is government-guaranteed bank corporate capitalism run amok and a perverse incentive to speculate more and enrich the executives at the top of the banks more. And a huge amount of the money that these banks have is government money. It's municipal, state, and federal money. And so more and more people are starting to predict that we're going to head for another round of collapse like the 2008-9. So more people are talking about nationalization. Now, that really scares some people. Uh-oh, here it comes, socialist banking. So on page 126 of Ellen Brown's wonderful new book called Banking on the People, she has this. One of the, quote, one of the options discussed by the Obama administration during the banking crisis in early 2009 was nationalization, transferring the biggest banks to public ownership. But as noted in a March 2009 editorial in The Progressive, and they quote, the word nationalization shuts off the debate. Never mind that Britain, facing the same crisis we are, just nationalized the Bank of Scotland. Never mind that Ronald Reagan himself considered such an option during the global banking crisis in the early 1980s, end quote. Tell us how normal it is, and it happens all the time with the FDIC, Continental Illinois, why don't you discuss those two points? Well, the aspect of private control of capital at the government level is really at the crux of the economic challenges that we have because, as you say, they are on the dole from us. But the federal government has certainly used a similar sort of a franchise, a national capability to fund things like the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which really built America, the middle class, in the mid-20th century, the highways, the, the warfare, and so forth. <laughs> the dams, all of that and so forth. That was all a nationalized banking structure that was highly successful and was really what drove the American miracle of economic success. It's true all over the world that the government-owned banks, nationalized banks, if you will, play key roles in helping to have national economies stable and be productive. Germany certainly is a great example of that, where their banks have, their public banks, for example, have funded about 75% of their green energy investment. These are investments that private capital banks would not be inclined to make, not the kind of returns they might be looking for, but also not the kind of risk that they're willing to take or the kind of length of lending. And of course, on the small basis, on a smaller basis, Germany's Sparkas and savings banks have really made their local economies work vibrantly for the last 200 years. They're very, very stable because they're so diversified. But right back here in the U.S., when the FDIC is confronted by a wobbly bank, it's supposed to be, you know, guaranteeing deposits up to $250,000 per deposit. They take over these banks. 
for example, the seventh largest bank in America in 1984 was the Continental Illinois Bank in Chicago. And Mm. the FDIC took it over because it was teetering toward bankruptcy. It wiped out existing shareholders, infused capital, took over bad assets, replaced senior management, and owned the bank for about a decade, running it Mm. as a commercial enterprise. And then in 1994, it sold it to the Bank of America. So there's nothing new here. All kinds of wobbly banks are taken over by the FDIC and its counterpart when the savings and loan collapse occurred a few decades ago. There's nothing new here. So let's get you know rid of the so-called socialist specter because what we have here is out-of-control corporate bank socialism. Namely, they reap the profits using other people's money. They enrich themselves at the top of the company. They make money from money, which isn't a very productive enterprise, and then they send the bill to Washington when their whole edifice collapses. So that's why if there is another collapse, people like you and Ellen Brown and others have crafted a plan so that it can be put before Congress to basically say, never again is this going to happen. You're not going to privatize your profits, giant banks, in secret and not even have productive use of the money that you're a trustee of, and then send the bill when your greed collapses the economy and unemploys workers and strips homeowners of their home to Washington, namely the U.S. taxpayer. It's not going to happen again. The October 2nd Fresno Bee reported that California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a law allowing cities in California to start their own public banks to make it easier to fund projects in the public interest. Atypically for such a story, the Bee led with opponents' argument that such ventures are risky and impractical before offering supporters' successful view and a statement from the bill's author, which the story then undercut with the reporter's claim that analyses determined public banks could reduce state tax revenue, followed by a statement from the California Bankers Association that public banks could harm local banks, put taxpayer dollars at risk, and aren't always in the best interest of the public before closing with the words of the head of the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association that the commercial banking industry already provides any services public banks could and, quote, government tends to mess up most of the things it touches, close quote. While that story was almost humorously negative, don't expect a lot of corporate media love for public banks, precisely to the extent that they represent, as David Dayen wrote recently, a radical shift in understanding money, what it represents, and how it can work collectively. Of course, that's exactly why the idea and this historic step is so exciting. Joining us now to talk about what just happened in California is Trinity Tran. She's the co-founder and lead organizer for Public Bank LA and a founding member of the California Public Banking Alliance. She joins us by phone from Los Angeles. Welcome to Counterspin, Trinity Tran. Thank you, Janine. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a big deal, but I I haven't seen too much media yet outside of California 
So let's just start with what the Public Banking Act, formerly AB 857, that Newsom signed. What does it do? Why is it historic? Yes, this has uh, been a low-key win, but it's been quite incredible because it essentially is a David versus Goliath story. An all-volunteer group of activists that went toe-to-toe with well-funded banking lobbyists to push this bill through the California state legislature. And, of course, as you just mentioned, Governor Newsom signed the bill last week. So what AB 857 does is it sets up a legal and regulatory framework for public banks to be regulated by the California Department of Business Oversight. It allows and empowers uh, California cities and counties to form their own banks. You know, currently in California, we don't have a public banking option. The only public bank in the United States is the Bank of North Dakota and the state of North Dakota, which is one of the only banks that survived the economic crash of 2008, really, and has been highly successful for the last century, returned 18% return on investment back to the general fund. So that provides a great model for us to emulate here in California. So now that Governor Newsom has signed this bill, it opens the doors for cities and counties in California to be able to create a business plan and submit the business plan to the Department of Business Oversight for approval to begin the process, to be able to recapture all of the interest and fees that right now we pay to out-of-state Wall Street banks who don't have a fiduciary duty to invest in California communities. So this is a very exciting step for California and uh, is potentially going to shift the national conversation behind finance. Because what we're doing is, you know, re-envisioning what finance is. It, it can be something that helps rather than harms our communities. We're redirecting the flow of money instead of our taxpayer dollars going to Wall Street banks to then leverage our funds to finance private prisons and immigrant detention centers and fossil fuel projects, we're able to circulate that money back into our local economies to actually address things that we need in California, such as affordable housing and green energy infrastructure and small business loans. Part of what is so different about public banks is not just what they would fund, but how they work. You know, the idea that they would be more transparent than commercial banks and more accountable and more essentially local. It's, it's not just a what, it's also kind of a how it works and who's involved. Isn't that right? Exactly. Deposits are made locally. Investments are local. The decisions are made locally. It's a return to local control. You know, in, in California over the last 20 years, we've lost over 75% of our local banks. And that means that wealth is getting siphoned out of the communities to line the pockets of -of out-of-state bankers. Well, one of the most widely circulated column was this column by Dan Walters, in which he worried that if the bill became law, we could see political pull being used to direct loans from these banks. And that made me think of how withholding loans and redlining, how much lasting damage that did and does in the Black community in particular, you know, and the idea that somehow having it in the hands of the public would introduce the idea of this kind of interference is very disturbing, you know. But what I really wanted to say was what I what I think is so interesting about public banking is that it's not trickle down. Democratized finance really kind of helps the worst off first in a way. 
Absolutely. Regarding the decision-making process on loans and investments, the bank will have an independent board of directors. Right. And that's going to be worked out in the business plan. That has to get approved by the California Department of Business Oversight to ensure that there isn't any political interference. And, of course, activists will be working hand-in-hand with legislators across the state to ensure that the banks are going to be the most democratic and transparent as possible. And then uh, just the idea to the point that uh, communities of color might see themselves particularly invested in this sort of effort as having been particularly harmed by the private banking industry. Yes, having stakeholders be a part of the build-out of the banks is going to be very critical to success. You know, we don't want these banks just to be built by financial experts and bankers. We plan on here in Los Angeles, and I know with our allies across the state, we plan on having community forums to educate constituents and bring in community leaders and stakeholders to be part of the conversation on what the build-out of these banks are going to look like. The ABA 57 was created as a very lightweight bill, so we would be able to give flexibility to localities and local governments across the state to design a bank with lending priorities that would reflect the needs of their constituents. Well, some of the coverage that I've seen has noted that North Dakota, as you mentioned earlier, the only other state with a public bank system or a public bank, that was 100 years ago, and now Mm -hmm. California, it seems unlikely that we will wait another 100 years to see another place take up public banking. You do see what happened in California as a flexible frame, as you're putting it, but still a frame for something that other places could take up. Absolutely. It really is the inevitable evolution of a financial system that's only served a very small handful of people. And, you know, this has been said many times before, it is an idea that is long overdue. It's an idea whose time has come. So we were so thrilled to get the endorsement of over 180 organizations across the state from grassroots to grass tops, elected officials, including 17 cities and counties who signed on to endorse the bill, uh, Democratic Central Committees from across the state, social justice group, environmental groups, you know, all across the board. This is People are unifying behind this idea. So we, we hope that this sets a, a precedent, California can set a precedent for cities and states uh, across the country. Would the U.S. economy, which, as we know, has its problems, work better if some industries and services were nationalized? It has been so long that we have been sold the merits of private over anything resembling public ownership that it is almost shocking to read that in one of the most conservative states in the Union, Nebraska, every single resident and business receives electricity from a publicly owned utility, co-op, or public power district. Partly as a result, Nebraskans pay one of the lowest rates in the nation. So what would be the pros and cons of following Nebraska? That's just one of the questions Thomas Hanna asks in his new book, Our Commonwealth, The Return of Public Ownership 
in the United States. It's out now. Hannah is research director at the Democracy Collaborative, our colleagues. Thomas, welcome to the program. I think this is the first time you're appearing live and in person in a chair in the studio. Glad to have you. It is. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I used both terms there because people have heard both. They've heard nationalizing, bad. Public ownership, different. But nationalizing brings up all sorts of stereotypes, sort of Stalin's shipyards and Maggie Thatcher's coal mines and, I don't know, the Postal Service, which I happen to love. Um, that's some of what you're trying to address in this book, right? What are the myths? Yeah, exactly. So the book essentially has three premises. First and foremost, that in the United States, public ownership is much more prevalent and resilient than most people think. You know, we think of the United States as sort of being the beating heart of free market capitalism. But in reality, we actually have quite a robust tradition of public ownership. The second, that's despite 40 years or so of neoliberal propaganda that has been really effective. You know, there's not actually any consensus in the empirical or theoretical literature about whether or not public ownership is inherently less efficient than private ownership. Wait a minute. There is not? I mean, we have been told it has been drilled into us by every media outlet in the land for three decades at least that public is less efficient than private. It's not true? Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the Margaret Thatcher, there's no, alter no alternative or, you know, government is the problem, not the solution. But I went into this and I studied dozens and dozens of empirical and theoretical literature and studies. And I actually found people, these academics, they'd go into their studies thinking that, oh, I'm going to find that private is more efficient than public and coming out and saying things like, oh, to my surprise, the publicly owned entity is as efficient or more efficient than the privately owned entity. So what kind of public entities are we talking about, Nebraska aside? Yeah. So in the United States, we have around 2,000 publicly owned electric utilities. About 90% of all people in the United States get their water from a publicly owned water utility. That's like significantly higher than in many countries, especially England, which you may know, where they've privatized their water system and have had terrible, terrible results as a result of it. You know, there's about, uh, you know, so in, we have sovereign wealth funds in many Western states. These are very large publicly owned funds. So Alaska, for instance, many people know they have a very large publicly owned fund that takes a cut of oil and mineral extraction. Action, and they use it to provide essentially a basic income to everyone in the state. In Texas, there's a huge fund, the Texas Permanent School Fund. It's like a $40 billion fund. And they take about a billion dollars in dividends every year and they give it to every public school district in Texas. So just to back up, I mean, just so that people really get what we're talking about. For one thing, you're talking about public ownership, a little bit different from national. Alaska's model isn't the model that we have in New York. It is the model they have in Alaska. That means Alaskans, what, own the oil resources as a group? Yeah, so they take a cut of the profits or from the extraction, and then they invest it into stocks, bonds, real estate, other things. So they do own a variety of assets through their uh, essentially taxation of the fossil fuel extraction. In Texas, the Texas Permanent School Fund does something similar with extraction, but also directly owns 2 million acres of land in the state. So a public fund owns 2 million acres uh, of property. And what do you think is the best argument that you're hearing around public ownership as opposed to private? Yes. Is it that it makes more money? Is it that it's just kind of more accountable um, or all of the above? Well, for me, the most important thing about public ownership is that it's a flexible ownership form. Unlike private ownership and especially corporate ownership, it is not constrained by shareholder value, quarterly returns, having to turn a profit. Public ownership is really what you want to make of it. It's uh, something, you know, it reflects the community's priorities in many ways. And I'm not going to sit here and say that uh, publicly owned enterprises in the United States are paragons of transparency and accountability and democratic participation, uh, but they can be. 
you know, they can be democratized. And that goes back to my third uh, premise of the book, is that we don't want to go back to the top-down uh, forms of public ownership of the past, the state-owned enterprises, the nationalizations, as you say. We want to really democratize public owned enterprises. We want to put them back in the hands of the people, back in the hands of the workers, the consumers. So how do you do that? Are there any models? Yeah, there are great models uh, all across the world and some here in the United States as well. For instance, Paris remunicipalized its uh, water utility about 10 years ago. In the process of that, they also set up an observatory, which is to encourage encourage civic participation. Uh, and the board of the water utility uh, takes represent- representatives from the observatory. It has environmental representatives, it has worker representatives, it has city councilors on it. So it's a multi-stakeholder board. Is won awards for its transparency, for its accountability, and so on. In Costa Rica, there's a bank, Banco Popular, which has a 290-person general assembly, which is drawn from workers all over the country. And that general assembly elects uh, four members of the board, and the government appoints three members of the board. And it goes through a popular planning process in the country. And as a result, it's become one of the most ecologically friendly and most sustainable lenders in Central America. So it's all a matter of how it's done in the same way that a co-op kind of can be. You can either have kind of top-down, publicly owned or community-influenced, transparent, publicly owned. Um, I've got two questions. One is what needs to be done or what happens to lead to the better of those two possible outcomes? And what do you think people are could be doing in this country right now? Yeah, so people, communities, activists need to realize and understand that public-owned enterprises are a tremendous asset and a resource for change, for systemic change. So, for instance, in Nebraska, you mentioned earlier, two or three renewable energy activists, climate activists, have recently run for the board of the Omaha Public Power District Mm. on a platform of converting it away from its heavy coal usage to more renewable and wind power. So they've taken hold of that strategy, and if you can get a control of it, if you can democratize a publicly-owned enterprise, you can move it in a direction of, of affecting real change. We've seen in the public banking movement here in the United States, there's tremendous possibilities of what you can do if you get control of capital at the local level in terms of a public bank. So in the minute that we have left, I want you to address people's fear of government because, you know, government control over data, government influence, uh, you know, surveillance over our lives. People tend to be wanting less government rather than more. Um, take Facebook, for example. A lot of people have been talking recently, given the abuses of Facebook, that it should be nationalized. It should be taken over. Um, but I did give me pause when I saw Steve Bannon was in favor. Yeah, so I think this gets to the democratization question. So we don't want to centralize power and control in the hands of the state and an unaccountable bureaucracy. We want to really give it back to the people in a more decentralized and distributed form. So we have to put in place the mechanisms to allow for that. So more transparency, more accountability, more flexibility, uh, more participation rather than less. You know, a lot of people in the liberal center, you know, they when they look at publicly owned enterprises, they don't necessarily want to privatize them, but they want them, them to be arm's length corporations. They want to act, have them to act like private corporations, nimble in the marketplace. I think that's the wrong approach. We really want to embed democracy within these enterprises and bring them back towards the people.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, speaking with Representative Ro Khanna on the calls for California to take over Pacific Gas and Electric. Building Local Power also discussed California and the lack of accountability that allowed PG&E to get away with inflating profits while under-investing in disaster prevention. Weekly Economics discussed the movement for public ownership in the UK, sparked by the current Labour Party. The Next System podcast explained the importance of getting the management and accountability structures right when converting to public ownership. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour talked about our current banking system and the need for local public banks to fund projects in each state. Counterspin reacted to California passing a new law legalizing public banks in the state. And finally, we just heard the Laura Flanders show discussing the merits of public ownership in a variety of industries. Members, uh, to be honest, might be hearing more about PG&E and why they're terrible and, and, and maybe some other things. But um, what we're about to hear from a caller and my final comments today, I think, are going to bleed over into the bonus show as well. So ultimately, I'm undecided as to what members will be hearing, but they're going to be hearing something, that's for sure. So to hear all of that, whatever it turns out to be, and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now we'll hear from you. Uh, back in mid-November, I ran a rerun episode that was about a year old about the effects of patriarchy on men. And in that episode, I commented that it, you know it's an issue that isn't talked about enough. To be honest, I can't remember exactly how I framed it, but Anyway, that's what this call is in response to. Hi, Jay. This is Shannon in the Bronx, New York. I wanted to leave a comment about your comments about why feminism needs to let men know that smashing the patriarchy is also good for them. I have a couple of things. The first thing I'm going to say is that uh, when you're saying, like, let men know you know, when you were using the example of that it's not just black people in prison and that it also hurts the white people in prison, I think one of the main things I was thinking was that the patriarchy and supremacy specifically helps upper class white people. And in that, if you look at it in that light, that yes, in fact, the majority of those people do not go to prison. And, you know, if you look at Reconstruction era after the Civil War, there was a specific movement to get working class whites to become racist so that it would support the white supremacist structure that was keeping the elites and still keeps the elites in a higher place. That said, I wanted to get to your comment about Feminists have always been pointing out how the patriarchy hurts men. The problem has been that men are not interested in the, or have not traditionally been interested in the feminist movement. I mean, I was thinking in particular, like, there is a, there's a great feminist book called The Women's Room that came out in the early 70s, and that it's a novel that specifically shows you how much it's hurting the men as well. And, you know, there's many other books I could tell you about Fast forward to last year, Eva Ensler comes out with the book, The Apology, which specifically shows in detail how it's hurting the man who abused her. 
And, you know, there's several interviews with her where she goes to, she goes on to explain this. You know, one of the most powerful ones I heard was with Mark Marin, where she's saying, like, there's a collective refusal for men to apologize or to stand up and say, this is what we've done. Even in the Me Too movement, you know, in this era of Me Too, Me Too, we haven't seen any men stand up and apologize for what they did because she says it's almost like a traitor to the rest of men, that it's just not something that these men have been able to do. Now, I was thinking in response to that, the good news about this is that, you know, the 60s feminist movement, those men not only weren't interested in hearing these arguments, they actively mocked and had hatred towards the feminist movement. So the way women had to only, the only audience that they had were other women. And the only way they could change the society was to change other women and hopefully get the, the society to change, which show, you can see those women, their children ended up being third wave feminists, which is my generation, Gen X. And that's in the 90s. No one ever talks about, you know, the 90s, all of a sudden, the third wave feminists were all about more inclusion and more diversity in the in the movement and i think you can see that in the generations coming after us for instance yourself you're a millennial and you're a man who's saying hey why aren't we talking about this something that my father's generation not only won't talk about but if you ask them to talk about it will actively mock you and or hurt you. You know, one of the examples I can say from my own life is I'm in recovery. And I recently had to speak at a meeting where it was mostly boomer women. And I, you know, told my story, which involves me getting raped. And the only women who would comment about it said, in my day, we never talked about that stuff. Uh, it's why, you know, it's very brave of you to have said something, but we don't talk about that. And, you know, my generation, not only are we talking about it, we're telling our children, like, it's not right. And now you're, you know, you see in the generations under us, the millennial men, the next generation, they're more open to equality. They're more open to coming out at younger ages as gay or lesbian. Um, anyway, so the point I was trying to make was just that, like, uh, maybe you did mansplain it a little bit, but I don't think it was out of mansplaining as much as maybe not knowing so much the history of the movement. That, yes, we have been saying for as long as feminism has been a thing, this would be better for you, too. But we haven't had an audience of men. And uh, I'm... Happy to have more men in the audience. I mean, I, I recommend reading The Apology by Eve Ensler or maybe even doing something specifically on this topic. You know, I mean, I guess the whole episode you did was, but there's more to be said about it. Thank you. Hi, Jay. It's Shannon from the Bronx again. I forgot to say uh, one thing. First, I wanted to say I am a member and I love your show and you're doing a great job. And the, I also wanted to say that, like, what I was saying about the generational change in um, 
the way men are receptive to feminism. I think a perfect example of that would have been your last episode where you were willing to openly talk about your depression and even say that you had cried. That willingness to let go of hyper-rigid masculine behavior is something I don't think the older generations would have been willing to do. And um, I also think that's a pretty good example of us going in a good direction. So thanks again for all you do. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So huge thanks to Shannon for calling in and and leaving those comments. I'm glad that she sort of grudgingly uh, uh, said that it's not the, exactly that I'm mansplaining all of this. I, I agree. I think a more accurate uh, description would be, you know, it's not, it's not that I'm a man uh, explaining to women what they should be doing. It's more that I'm a person living in the present explaining what I wish people had done in the past. I'm, I'm more future-splaining than anything. And, and, you know, I think this is part of the natural progression. Each generation has impatience with the previous because we've progressed more, right? Like each generation does the best they can and progress is often made. And we appreciate all that progress that was made. But we have hindsight and that allows us to see what could have gone better. And, and so, sure, these arguments were made in the 70s, as Shannon was pointing out. But I didn't hear about it until the 20 teens. And you know, I'm not like the arbiter of, of all society, but just for a little bit of background information, like I, I was born in the 80s, grew up mostly in the 90s. My mother, like j- just so you know the stock I come from, my mother, my sister uh, came into town in D.C. for the Women's March, you know, the, the first, the biggest one. And my mother saw Angela Davis at a coffee shop. And she said, oh, excuse me for a minute, I have to go and say hello to Angela Davis to tell her what a big fan I am. So my, you know, like 60-something white mother has been an Angela Davis fan for decades and then fangirled to her uh, during the Women's March. So, like, that's that's where I come from. And yet I have never heard this argument. And it's not because I was so sheltered or anything. Like I just grew up in a normal, generally progressive, like yay, feminism and equality sort of way. But the the framing that I grew up with was still the war between the sexes, this, this permeating mentality that, that there was this friction between the sexes instead of it being a, like a war on sexism, Good people are on this side, sexists are on that side. It was, no, 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 it's a war between the sexes. And that sort of framing, like, that's clearly a male supremacist framing, and this just creates a stark divide. It begs for people to choose a side. And so if you're not thinking very hard about it, you'll probably just go along with whatever gender you are and say, okay, I guess I know where I stand. So there are plenty of reasons for why this is the case. I mean, Shannon said there wasn't much of an audience 
for that kind of messaging to say, no, 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 feminism's for everyone. We're trying to help men too. You know, women were mocked and shouted down and threatened and all of the, you know, for, if you made that sort of argument, you were not going to find a big audience for it. But these arguments still needed to be made and they weren't made to the point that they permeated society's understanding of feminism. So we, we got stuck with this war between the sexes framing for way too long. We still have a hangover from it. People still don't know. They, they think that feminism is about female supremacy. They think that it's about oppressing men. You know, they're modern, young, relatively with it women in the public eye who say that they're not feminists because they still to this day misunderstand what it is. So sounds like Shannon and I agree that this should be part of the discussion within feminism, like not the dominant topic, don't misunderstand, but just part of it. And Shannon points out rightly that People have been making this argument for decades, and and I agree with that, but all I'm saying is that it wasn't made enough. And I know, because I grew up in this world decades after this argument was first made, and it's not like I, oh, I, I didn't learn about it in the 90s, it wasn't until the 2000s. No, no, no. I was in my 30s by the time I even heard of this framing, and I'm a person who pays attention to this stuff. I go looking for this stuff. And it took me this long to come across this framing. So for me, it's not about knowing or, or misunderstanding the history or, or not giving credit where credit is due for those who made these arguments in the past. I'm just talking about the actual results. The results are no one knows this framing. Like I know it because I go looking for this stuff. Most people don't know it. And so that's a, a failure of the messaging of feminism. And, and we can talk about why that's the case. It's not all about blame and saying people did things terribly wrong and I would have done it better if I was there. I'm just analyzing kind of what what happened um, or, or the, the result of it, I guess. And it's not entirely to do with that messaging just not being received well by men. Part of the reason it doesn't get talked about more is because not all feminists agree that it should be talked about. There is a contingent who specifically argue against broadening the discussion beyond women's liberation. And so I, I read a long article about it. It's not a stupid argument. There is a lot to be said for it. I ultimately disagree with it, but it's not as stark of a divide as you might think. And, and so this is what I'm going to end up talking about in the bonus show today. There's a lot more to go, but I'll, I'll just finish by saying that I am having this conversation. You know, I, I talked about it in that rerun episode. I'm talking about it again now just to add my voice to this argument to say that I am on the side that says, I think we need to talk about this in a holistic way. We need to talk about men, not as the focal point of feminism, but as part of a holistic conversation about feminism and women's liberation more broadly, because it's not just women who need to be liberated. Sure, they're, they're the much more oppressed group, but the unfortunate fact is that that argument isn't enough to get a lot of people to come into the movement. And I think that we need to make as many arguments as possible to give people as many on-ramps to feminism as possible to create the largest possible movement. And that means talking to men and about men, even if that seems unjust in a movement that has been traditionally focused 
on the liberation of women. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.